as Brittany was talking today, I was thinking, you know, Jacob had to have been the first prosperity gospel guy because he not only swindled his brother out of a blessing, he had to wrestle with an angel for another blessing. Like, this guy was pretty blessing hungry. I don't know. Well, Denise and I have had a crazy week. Some of you know we got tented this week for termites, and it was supposed to happen on Monday. And they assured us repeatedly that even though it's raining, it's still going to happen. So we got the dog in a kennel, and we're in a hotel, and we've made arrangements with merry maids to come on Wednesday and do a cleaning when we get home and all the stuff, and the gas is off on the house. And 4 o'clock, they cancel on us, and they don't call me. They decided to call them and say, I don't see anybody yet, and oh, we're canceling. And so all of the drama that goes with that. So we were able to reschedule for Thursday, went through the whole drill again. Well, actually, Monday night, the gas guy came out in the pouring rain before I had to go to Elder's and turn the gas back on so we'd have hot water and be able to wash our clothes and all that stuff. And uh, so Thursday, the same drill again, and the crew comes out, and oh, it's too windy. And apparently, our house is too pointy that it rips the tents and the wind, and then it's ineffective. And I'm thinking, what house is not pointy? I mean... (laughs) I don't see a lot of igloos in Ventura, and I'm like, and I'm looking at the wind going, you'd be challenged to find a day less windy right now. What do they do in Palmdale and Lancaster and areas where it's like chronic wind? So anyways, whole drill again, and um, I'm like, I'm not even calling the gas department to turn the gas back on because I don't want to jerk them around. So uh, rescheduled for Friday morning. And it actually worked. And so we've been in a hotel this weekend, and many of you have offered your home, and we appreciate that, and that's super sweet. But we had jerked this hotel around so many times, and they had accommodated us through all the craziness that we felt very obligated to follow through. But so finally I get on the phone, and I'm calling the gas company again to resume the service on Monday. And as I'm waiting on, you know, the endless uh, music and wait menu, it's like, we will be closed Monday for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I'm like, I'm in a bad dream. Please wake me up because, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world that's far worse. But yeah, it was quite the week, quite fun. We are going to be starting a series on John today, and it's kind of a big picture John series. And I've... um, Got a bunch of resources that I'm drawing from to kind of see some of the themes and the the symbolism and the the big picture in John. And one of those resources comes from a gal named Sinitka Smothers. She originally came from Finland to Alabama on a college scholarship, and she came to train to be a missionary. And while she was uh, at the University of Alabama, she met her husband, Jim, and her plans changed, and she ended up being a science teacher for 25 years. And now she's recently retired, and she loves to teach Bible studies at her church and write books and spend time with her husband. But several years ago, she began a systematic search for the occurrence of numbers in Scripture. This is what she writes. She says, it should come as no surprise that God loves numbers. He used mathematical algorithms to construct the matrix of what we call our universe. He suspended earth in the infinite celestial community where forces control motions, chemical reactions produce material changes, and matter and energy ultimately flow interchangeably like an intergalactic recycling system. Physical formulas and chemical equations attest to the numeric perfection of God's handiwork. 
Mathematics is God's language of creation. Many of you recall this last Christmas as, as Brittany was reminding us of uh, the star of Bethlehem and the heavens and how the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the precision of the heavens that you can go back any period of time, any year in time, and the heavens are telling a story of creation as well uh, that's mapped out in Scripture and just the amazing uh, part of that. Well, the Seneca Gallinger search discovered that the number seven appears with more frequency than any other number in Scripture. And Hebrew numerology, we know it is uh, the number of divine completion and perfection or fulfillment. When you look at the uh, number seven in the Old Testament, according to Genesis, we all know that God created the earth and uh, the universe in six days. And on the seventh day, he declared it to be a Sabbath day a day of holy rest where we're invited to commune with him and to uh, meet with him. The tent of tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai combined seven different pieces of furniture. One of them was a lampstand with uh, seven branches, the menorah. There were seven priests who uh, sounded seven trumpets as they marched around Jericho the seventh time after a seven-day siege. In Leviticus, there are seven feasts of the Lord, special annual days set aside for the people of Israel to bring sacrifices, to fellowship and celebrate the God who chose them from among all the nations of the earth to be his special messengers. There are literally hundreds of examples of the number seven in Scripture. Well, her quest led her to look at the New Testament, in, in particular the book of Revelation where the number seven appears in sets of letters to churches, as you know very well, uh, sets of seals and trumpets and bowls and thunders, angels executing judgments upon the earth, and seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The number seven is just all over the place in Revelation. And her thought was perhaps that if John used this pattern and theme of sevens in Revelation, what about his gospel? Did it carry forward there as well? A thought that I've never even had before. This caused her to begin to wonder um, about the Gospel of John. And first she was skeptical about what she found, but then she, she grew excited about what appeared to be intentional rather than coincidental evidence. And I shared some of this with you last week. Seven miracles that Jesus performs, which are signs that attest to his divinity, who he is. They reveal things about him. Seven I am statements that reveal powerful truths about his character and power. Seven lengthy private conversations with individuals in Jesus. Seven women who met Jesus. Seven witnesses who testify about Jesus. The seven last statements of Jesus on the cross. On and on and on and on. And I want to take a moment just to throw out a a disclaimer. I'm, I'm not a numerology person and I'm not into numbers meaning something greater and all of that. And do I believe for one moment that John was smart enough to embed all of this stuff in his gospel and revelation? And no, I don't. But to me, it's another evidence that scripture is inspired by God, that it's his holy word. And you can probe scripture as deep as you want. You can study it a million times. And every time you come to it, you see something new. You see just endless depth and beauty to it, which is, which is wonderful and amazing as, as we study God's Word. I, I personally discovered this week seven, or a, a, a theme of 
of day markers within the Gospel of John that seems to be reminiscent of the seven days of creation. And I'll, I'll take just a moment here and walk you through really quick if you want to take notes or follow along in your Bible. In John 1.29, it mentions the next day. And so we know that John 1, verses 1 through 28, was the first day. In John 1.35, we see that phrase, the next day again. John 1.43, again, the next day. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 1, somebody says it talks about a new day or the third day, but it, it's tying into the, the, the John 1.35 day. It's the same day as that. That's what it's saying there. You move to John 6.22, and you have another day marker. John 12, verse 12, another day marker. You can circle that. John 19, verse 14, tells us it was a day of preparation. John 20, verse 1, it was the first day of the week. And then John 21, verse 4, we find uh, a day is dawning and the disciples decided to go fishing. Now, I get it that those are actually nine different day markers, but the truth is, if you count from the beginning to the next day, there are eight days, and seven of those days fall within the gospel proper. The 21st chapter of John is seen as an epilogue. It's kind of the uh, the, the after notes of John, and it actually uh, refers to the time after Jesus' resurrection. And so, look what's happening on these days. In, in the first day, the Word of God is revealed to the world. In the second day, the Lamb of God brings salvation to the world. In the third day, the Savior or Messiah calls disciples to Himself. On the fourth day, or uh, actually, yeah, the, yeah. On the fourth day, Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. On the fifth day, he reveals himself as the bread of life, the sustainer of all life. On the sixth day, it's Palm Sunday, and he declares himself as the perfect Lamb of God given for the sins of the world. On the seventh day, it's Passover and it's crucifixion. And Jesus is literally resting on the seventh day in the tomb. And on the eighth day, if you will, it's the resurrection, it's the new creation, it's the recommissioning of Peter. Just interesting stuff. It just, it's on and on and on. What we're to make of it, I, I'm not you know, putting any money on that or saying that there's some deep truth hidden beneath the, the surface of Scripture. But it's just interesting to see the numbers in Scripture and how God works with those and the symbolism and the themes. And as we begin our big picture series in John today, I want to start by exploring those personal individual uh, conversations and encounters that Jesus has with people because they're lengthier in John than they are in any of the other Gospels. And we're going to begin today in chapter 1 as we look at Nathaniel and Nathaniel's interaction with Jesus in verses 43 to 51. We'll get there in a moment. But I want to impress upon you the fact that for the Jewish people, there was no human figure more revered and envied than Moses. Because Scripture says that Moses met with God as a man meets with a friend face to face. For the rest of the Israelites, it was relating to God as a group, as we are part of the Israelites, God's chosen people, or we are the priests and we relate to God. And we, the Israelites always related to God as a people group or part of a bigger uh, religious group. 
But the fact that Moses had these personal encounters with God was just mind-blowing. In the New Testament, we learn that even as Gentiles, non-Jews, which we, most of us are, we have been included in God's family through Jesus. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 uh, informs us of that very beautifully. You are a, pr- a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So even we non-Jews have been included into this family of God, the people of God. But our status as God's people goes even deeper than this, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Through Jesus and his finished work at the cross, Christians have the mind-blowing privilege of having a personal relationship with God. And I want to suggest to you that that would have been beyond the comprehension of ancient Jews. They would have never even considered that possibility. The patriarchs and some of the very special people like Moses or Abraham, they got that. But for the rest of us, we relate to God as a church, as a, as a nation, as a people group. And that would have just been beyond their comprehension. And as I said earlier, John's gospel, more than any other gospel, really highlights this individual, personal nature of our relationship with God. One of the first evidences of this that I see is in John chapter 1, verse 43, as Jesus is calling the disciples, <coughs> excuse me, we see the, the call of Philip into discipleship. And John's gospel is the only gospel that records this, the individual call of Philip. Most of the disciples came in pairs, or he called them in pairs, but he individually calls Philip in chapter 1, verse 43. We see in the famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, singular, believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. So everyone is invited to come, but we come to God as individuals, one by one. John chapter 10, the good shepherd is the shepherd of all the sheep, but he knows and he calls each individual sheep by name. And in the other gospels, we don't have the lengthy conversations that we see in John, but we read the parable about the shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. And so we see that individual personal heart and nature of God. In John's gospel, throughout his gospel, John never mentions his name, but he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his personal, individual relationship with Jesus as Jesus' half-brother. And at the Last Supper, we have that beautiful picture of John literally laying his head back against the chest of Jesus. And I don't know that we stop to think that Jesus as the Word of God, Jesus as God in human flesh, think of all of the people that personally encountered God through Jesus. I mean, think about it. I'm laying my head back now against the God of the universe, and I have that kind of a relationship with Him, that warmth, that closeness, uh, that intimacy, just mind-blowing. And John really records that for us. The first conversation, as I said, involves Nathaniel in John 1, verses 43 
to 51. And I want to turn to that text now and read. You can listen along or follow in your Bibles. John writes this, the next day Jesus purposed, or some translations say willed or desired to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. I want to stop there for a moment and unpack that. Jesus is from Galilee, so it's natural for him to go back there. He's been there before. He's going back there. But instead of John just mentioning that Jesus goes back to Galilee, instead he informs us that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, that he willed to go or desired to go. And it's for the express purpose of letting us know that he's going specifically back to Galilee in order to call Philip into discipleship. And so we see this intentionality, we see this purposeness, even within that simple verse. Well, this agrees with what John wrote in chapter 5, verse 21, where he said, just as a father gives life to those who he raises from the dead, so also the son gives life to anyone he wills or wishes. And so we see that Jesus, who is God in human flesh, had the ability and the power to give life and to draw people into discipleship, whoever he wanted, as he willed and as he desired. And we see that beautifully here in our passage. Verse 44, John 1. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, literally means house of fish, of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, kind of interesting to note here, but Philip is saying, we have found him, we have found Jesus, but as we read, Philip didn't find Jesus, Jesus was the one that found him. Jesus was the one that sought him out. And this is a great example of how divine and human searchings don't just merely complement each other, they fuse together into this beautiful picture of what it means to hold human responsibility and divine election and balance. We see that beautifully here. You know, whosoever wills may come, and as you enter the gates of heaven and you look back, you see on the backside of that, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Somehow God has foreknowledge of us and chooses us, each and every one that receives him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. There's a human responsibility, but there's also a divine calling, and we see that here. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. There, I want to say there's great wisdom in inviting people to discover things for themselves. So often we engage people in debate and we argue with people, but there, there's an incredible wisdom and beauty to just letting somebody experience for themselves. That's what faith is all about, and that's exactly what Nathaniel, uh, what Philip invites Nathaniel to do. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and he said, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Tracing out that name Israelite, we know that Israelite comes from Israel, and Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob, as Brittany was referencing early, when Jacob wrestled the angel of God, which he later discovered was God himself. And God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And so how interesting that here Jesus is highlighting the, the contrast between Jacob 
who was a very deceitful person who lied to his father and swindled his brother out of a blessing to receive, you know, a blessing, and, and Nathanael, whom Jesus said, in whom there is no guile or no deceit. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael's literal words are, from where do you know me? And Jesus responds by saying, before Philip called you. Um, Nathanael asks about the source of Jesus's knowledge from where, but Jesus answers in terms of time, before. And again, we see Jesus's divine foreknowledge that he knows all things in advance. And this illustrates what Jesus, the good shepherd, says in John chapter 10, verse 14. I know my sheep. I know them each by name. I call them each by name, and they recognize me. And Jesus is illustrating that throughout his ministry. Verse 49, Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I don't know that I've ever seen in Scripture somebody turn from skeptic to believer more quickly. And you have to wonder what caused him to change from what, what good thing can come from Nazareth to you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. This amazing declaration that he makes, just over the top. What's going on here? And notice that Nathaniel calls him the son of God rather than the son of Joseph, how Philip introduced him in verse 45. Just astounding. Verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, <clears throat> because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You, singular, will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly I say to you, plural, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so Jesus is having this personal conversation with Nathaniel and saying, you, singular, because I said this, do you believe? And then he turns to all the disciples and says, you, all of you, will see even greater things than this through my ministry, if you believe in me. And he goes on to say, as, as verse 51 says, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, Nathaniel was astounded that anybody just after meeting him, can declare this kind of verdict that he's a true Israelite with, with no deceit. And like, what, what is going on here? And I mentioned last time we looked at this passage, to the Jews, the fig tree stood for peace. It was uh, part of their expectation for peace involved a time when they could live undisturbed, each one under their own vine or their own fig tree. And if you want to write down Micah 4.4, 4, you can look at that later. It's a prophecy. Micah 4.4, 4, this is what it says. One day, everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. So there was this custom that because fig trees were canopy trees, they were large, they were leafy, the Jews had this custom of meditating under these trees, and that would be their quiet prayer time. And Nathaniel had undoubtedly been going through Scripture, had maybe even been reading from Genesis 28, 
and the, the words and the story about Jacob. And that's why it's so astounding to him that Jesus references that. And he knows full well there was nobody within eyesight that could have seen him meditating and praying under the fig tree. And every Jew, part of their daily prayers, were praying for the coming of the Messiah, that God's chosen one, the Messiah, would come and, and dawn upon their day and rescue them from the Romans and deliver them and bring salvation and everything else. So when Jesus comes and says these things to Nathaniel, the lights turn on and he goes, holy cow, you're the one. You're the one that I've been praying for. You're the one who knows me and sees me, not just physically, but supernaturally. That's the power of what's happening here. Well, what does this passage teach us about God, and what does it teach us about us? Jacob's vision of the latter was really prophetic that the Messiah would come from Jacob's line. That's part of the truth that's embedded in that. The Messiah would be the perfect man without sin or deception, the true one in whom there's no deceit. And he would be the gateway between God and men, between heaven and earth. And notice that this is confirmed in verse 51 in John's gospel here, chapter 1, by the fact that Jesus is the ladder that the angels of God are ascending and descending upon. Did you notice that? In, in Jacob's ladder dream in Genesis 28, they're going up and down this ladder, and in John chapter 1, verse 51, they're ascending and descending upon Jesus. Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth, between men and women and God. That's the power of what's being exclaimed here. After Jacob had the vision, he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Because in his own words, he said, literally God was in this place and I didn't even realize it, didn't even recognize it. Genesis 28 uh, verse 16 is where he says that. And we're seeing in John's gospel that Jesus is literally the new Bethel. Because wherever Jesus goes, wherever he is, God is revealed. God is revealed through him and through his life, and through his ministry, his words, his actions, because he is the word of God made flesh. That's the power of what we see in Jesus. Nathaniel's declaration of Jesus as the Son of God is both a claim to Jesus' divinity, and it's also a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel wrote this in chapter 7, beginning in verse 13 of his book in the Old Testament. He says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all of the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy, and it confirms his deity to his disciples, and particularly here to Nathaniel. As a son of man, Jesus is the divine human who connects heaven and earth, people and God, like Jacob's ladder. And when you think about it, the, the root word angel literally means messengers. So you have angels of God, messengers of God, going up and down upon this ladder, which is Jesus. 
And, and who is Jesus? He's the Word of God. So the communication between heaven and earth is happening through the Word, the ladder that they go up and down as the messengers are relaying the message of Jesus and all that He is. Powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus is the God who sees us and knows us personally and individually, not just as people groups, as Jews or Gentiles or the church or Christians, but individually and personally. He's the one who bridges heaven and earth, and he's the one who explains God and reveals God. Well, finally, what does this passage teach us about, about God? Um, I think one of the most powerful things is that if you, if you really think about Jacob, the patriarch, the, the patriarchs to the Jews were kind of worshipped as <clears throat> being on another level, on another plane, but we see in all of the Old Testament figures that they were really flawed people as well. <laughs> they had sins, they had faults, and again, I think that's part of the beauty of Scripture, that God did not leave that out. He didn't hide that. If we had been writing the Bible, human editors would have taken all of the sin and all of the bad stuff out because we would have thought or our thinking would be that that would discredit the truth of scripture but God leaves all that in and the purpose of these patriarchs even people like Jacob is not how holy and how special they were that these things happened to them but that in spite of their sinfulness in spite of their flaws these things happened to them and so Jacob we, we, we read in Genesis, was so deceitful and lying to his dad and swindling his brother out of a blessing that what? He, he had to leave home. He literally had to flee for his life because Esau wanted to kill him. Thought he was just a traitor and a, a double crosser and just hated him. And yet he received a vision, a, a revelation from God. And so as Jesus is saying this to Nathaniel, he's saying, I'm contrasting you with Jacob. I'm, I'm saying there's no deceit in you, and I'm referencing somebody in whom there was a lot of deceit, and I still blessed him. I changed his name, and I gave him all of these blessings. Do you believe that if you follow me, you'll see greater things than these? And the disciples are like, yeah. And I think that is the hope that's held out for you and I, that as we come to Jesus, as we have faith in him, as we respond to his invitation to come and see that we will see greater things than perhaps are even recorded in Scripture because that's the nature of God, that He's not living in the past in the glory days, but He is constantly doing new things. He is constantly redeeming. He's constantly saving. He's constantly working miracles. And He invites us to come and follow Him. And, and that's really what it means to have a personal relationship with God. Not this stale kind of, you know, ritualism that we follow and just go through the motions, but a, a living, dynamic, personal, intimate relationship with God that gets better and better. That's the nature of our faith. And if you look back before our passage in John 138, you find out that all of this interaction between Jesus and the disciples started in John chapter 1 verse 38 as the disciples are approaching Jesus and Jesus turns around and it sounds kind of gruff, but he's literally saying, what do you want? You know, kind of like more than just what do you want on a human level, but what are you looking for in life? But he says, what do you want? And their question, if you look in your Bible, is they want to know where he's staying. 
The Greek word for stain is meno. It also is translated as remain. And Jesus ultimately answers that question in John chapter 14. If anyone loves me, they will be loved by my Father. And we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will come and make our dwelling in them. So Jesus is like, you want to know where I'm physically staying right now, but here's a, here's a mind-blowing reality. I will literally live inside of every person who comes to me for salvation and starts a relationship with me. It's like, that would have just blown their mind. And then in John chapter 15, Jesus goes on to talk about the vine and the branches and abiding in him. It's that same word, meno, remain. If you remain in me and I remain in you, then you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that idea of abiding and remaining and dwelling in Jesus is this beautiful relationship where we abide in him and he lives in us and empowers us to do everything that he's called us to do. Powerful stuff here. Once we come to God through Jesus, we see amazing things. And I feel sorry for Christians that think that, you know, they've kind of seen all that God has to offer. And they're, they're bored with their faith. They're bored with church to me, they must have fallen into some miserable ritualism or, or traditional faith where they're just doing things out of, uh, without even thinking, just going through the motions. Because our faith is living. It's dynamic. The Word of God is living and active and powerful. And it takes root in our life and it does amazing things. And that's what is being said here. Well, Psalm 32 verse 2 says this, and I want to end with this today. How blessed, which literally means happy, is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in who, whose spirit there is no deceit. If you think about what Jesus said to Nathaniel, he literally was saying this, and every parent prayed this over their children, Lord, may my child be one in whom there is no guile or deceit, one in whom the, the Lord God does not impute any unrighteousness. And if you think about it, that is humanly impossible. What Jesus said about Nathaniel was impossible for him to embody that and characterize that apart from a relationship with Jesus. It's only possible through the cross to have a righteous standing with Jesus. Some Jews understood the name Israel to mean literally the one who sees God. And yet, what does John 1.18 tell us, the very first part? No one has seen God at any time. And you think, well, that's a bummer. If to be an Israelite means to see God, and to be a Christian means to see God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, and no one has seen God at any time, what does that mean for us? We'll finish the end of verse 18, John chapter 1. But the only begotten God, Jesus who is in the heart of the Father, has revealed him. He has made him known. And friends, that's the beauty of this first conversation. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to the disciples and to us, the modern-day readers, if you want to see God, if you want to see his power alive in your life and in this world, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the big picture in John's gospel and throughout your word, <clears throat> we just revel in all of the stuff that was really humanly impossible for 
authors who were largely uneducated to, to think up and to construct on their own. They weren't these literary uh, geniuses. But God, we believe that you used human authors to pen Scripture through their own personalities and their own experiences, and yet Scripture is divinely inspired. It's without error. It's profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. And God, things that we've read today really attest to that, that it is your word. It is living and active. It is eternal. It is all-powerful. And God, we thank you that when your word takes root in our lives, it brings new life. That when Jesus, the word of God, makes his home in us, we have eternal life. Not something that we enjoy one day when we die and go to heaven, but something that begins from the moment that we receive you into our heart and into our lives. And so we, we revel in that and we, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. God, we ask that you would just open our eyes throughout this study to see all that you have for us. And not just to get lost in the beauty of the truths, but to to see how this can become real in our lives as we live it out on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. God, as we bring our tithes and offerings before you this morning, whether we do that online or physically here, we ask, as always, that you would bless these monies and multiply them for the needs of this church and those that we support both within this community and around the world who further your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.